Hello friends and welcome to this edition of the Sioux Land Journal. That's the Sioux City Journal, of course, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your reader today is Dave Sauerman, and it is Monday, January 23rd, 2023, and we'll get right to the newspaper. Uh, first today, we're going to take a look at the latest Woodbury County Court Report before Judge Patrick Tott, Ricardo David Ramirez, age 24, of Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced January 19th to five years in prison, and Rafael Luis Gabriela, Jr., age 41, from Sioux City, third degree burglary, second degree criminal mischief, and first degree theft sentenced January 18th to 15 years in prison. Next, before uh, Judge Stephen Andreessen, uh, Carice Travail Weber, age 22, of Sioux City, aggravated assault, sentenced January 11th to 265 days in jail. And before Judge James Dane, Austin John Pate, age 28, of Sioux Falls, operating while intoxicated, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced January 17th to five years in prison, suspended, two years probation on a drug charge, and 10 days in jail for operating while intoxicated. Dudley Lee Blackbird, age 33, of Sioux City, second-degree criminal mischief, assault causing bodily injury, sentenced January 18th to five years prison, suspended, two years probation on criminal mischief charge, and 14 days for assault. And that concludes the court report. Next we have a story uh, titled Lease of Riverside Recreational Sports Complex back on the Sioux City Council's agenda. Sioux City staff is recommending that the Sioux City Council award a lease agreement to the Hess Foundation for the rental of Riverside Recreational Sports Complex since the nonprofit currently has a higher registration numbers than Westside Little League and would need to utilize a greater number of fields. According to city documents on January 6, city staff met with the Hess Foundation and Westside Little League to discuss the proposed Riverside Recreational Sports Complex lease agreement. Both sides were asked to bring their current registration numbers. At the time of the meeting, the Hess Foundation had commitments for 52 softball teams with the possibility of adding another 20 teams. The Westside Little League had 12 individual registrations. Sioux City Council will be asked Monday to approve a resolution accepting a lease agreement for the Hess Foundation's rental of Riverside Recreational Sports Complex for outdoor sport programs. The nonprofit organization, which is affiliated with the Arena Sports Academy, is currently renting Long Lines Family Recreational Center's second floor from the city but the facility's climbing wall and party room are not included in the lease. In October, the council voted to delete the Hess Foundation's request 
to rent Riverside Recreational Sports Complex from its consent agenda to allow the city staff to make changes to the lease agreement. Then, in December, city staff asked the council to approve a resolution accepting a lease agreement from Westside Little League to rent the complex. That recommendation came after our view team evaluated proposals from both the Hess Foundation and the Westside Little League, and they ultimately selected Westside Little League to lease the complex. <clears throat> During a council meeting on December 5th, Sioux City leaders expressed hope that Westside Little League and the Hess Foundation could create a partnership that could be a game changer for children playing youth sports in the community. At that time, the council opted to defer a vote on the matter so that the two entities could continue discussions. I have all confidence and faith in Westside Little League and the Hess Foundation that this can happen. I think we're going to see it happen, and I think it's going to be one of the finest things that this community has ever seen. Uh, that according to Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore uh, during the meeting. After city staff met with the Hess Foundation and Westside Little League on January 6, a preliminary schedule was created in accordance with both entities' registration numbers. The Hess Foundation would need all six Riverside complex fields, along with fields at other locations, for their softball league program. Based on field utilization, city staff is recommending that the council award a lease agreement to the Hess Foundation. The documents state that the proposed lease agreement, if approved, would run from February 7 through December 31. Either party would be able to terminate the agreement without cause by providing 30 days written notice to the other party. The city would give the Hess Foundation the right to operate and maintain Riverside Recreational Sports Complex in a smoke-free manner, as well as the right to operate the concession facilities for the sale of various goods. The Hess Foundation would be responsible for scheduling all of the fields for practices, league play, and tournaments according to the documents. Our next story, a longtime Lamar's eatery is now serving iconic baked goods. I, or, excuse me, Friday was D-Day for John Kucinich's Hinton Community School District preschool class. Or, more precisely, the kids were going to words that start with the letter D. Donuts start with the letter D, Kucinich said, picking up a pre-recorded box of four, or excuse me, a pre-ordered box of four dozen Vandermeer Bakery's freshly baked glazed donuts. The students will certainly get a kick out of that. In addition to a sweet treat, the preschoolers were also experiencing a changing of the guard in Plymouth County's culinary scene. Around Christmas time, 2022, owner Chris Steffen decided to close the iconic Vandermeer Bakery. Best known for its breads, rolls, and donuts, the 33 Central Avenue Northwest Bakery had been in business since 1934. Stefan decided to sell the Vandermeer name, its tradition, as well as the recipes, to Tom and Patty Molali, longtime owners of Lolly's Eastside Restaurant. Not only did the Molali's 
buy the bakery's famous recipe for donuts. They also hired Stefan to continue making baked goods at Lolly's 125 Plymouth Street Northeast Eatery. The first batches of Vandermeer's donuts started flying off the shelves on January 16. With Vandermeer, it was all about tradition, Tom Mullally said. The bakery represented a big part of the history of Lamar's, Iowa. The same thing could be said of Lolly's Eastside Restaurant, which was started by Tom Mullally, his father, Mike Mullally, Sr., in 1961. Vandermeer was around for 88 years, and Lolly's has been in operation for 62 years, Tom Mullally said. Not too many businesses can say they've had longevity. Lolly's, best known for its roasted chicken and barbecue ribs, was a steady customer of Vandermeer for many, many years. We bought all of our bread from Vandermeer back in the day, Tom Mullally said, pointing to a framed 1965 black and white photograph of his father posing in front of Lolly's catering truck. Dad was proud to buy everything local. That's why he wanted to have the Vandermeer name on the truck as well as his own. I guess there's always been a connection between these two businesses, he added. More significantly, Stacy Mullally, the daughter of Tom and Patty Mullally, also happens to be an experienced baker. For many years, I worked at the bakery, Departments of Kroger's, which happens to be the largest supermarket chain in the United States, Stacy Mullally explained. Nobody was happier than me when my parents decided to purchase Vandermeer. Plus, the new baked goods will be made and sold at Lolly's. Lolly's is a three-generation run business and would probably serve three generations of customers, Tom Mullally said. In addition, they're also seeing a brisk early morning trade from many of Vandermeer's former customers. Stacy Mullally admitted she was still becoming accustomed to the 6 a.m. openings. When you're used to opening at 11 a.m., 6 a.m. seems like it's the middle of the night. <laughs> Tom Mullally, who just turned 74, likes getting off to an early start. For a restaurant owner, a restaurant is a business as well as a home away from home, he said. It's where I get to socialize. So far, Vandermeer's Donuts' new location has been drawing raves from Lolly's customers. Every day we sell out of donuts, Stacy Mullally said with a smile. Sometimes we sell our donuts as early as 9 o'clock in the morning. We sell out of our donuts as early as 9 o'clock in the morning. Which is why preschool teacher Kucinich wanted to pre-order her baked goods in advance. When Vandermeer announced they were closing, I was pretty much bummed, she said. So as, as soon as I heard the donuts were coming to Lolly's, I knew we would be, or they would be, in good hands. That's music to the ears of Tom Lolly. If you combine Vandermeer's 88 years with Lolly's 62 years, well, that adds up to a combined 150 years, he said. This is a big chunk of Lamar's history. As the last day, uh, excuse me, as the last of the day's donuts are sold, Tom Mullally couldn't help but smile. People can expect to see Vandermeer's baked goods at Lolly's for many years to come, he said.
So if you decide to go, uh, Lolly's East Side Restaurant is now serving Vandermeer's Donuts. And they are located at 125 Plymouth Street, Northeast in Lamar's, Iowa. They are open from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. Sunday through Thursday and 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. Fridays and Saturdays. Our next story comes to us from T, South Dakota. Progress on a water system some 30 years in the works is reaching a point at which Executive Director Troy Larson says he can see light at the end of the tunnel. Might it be more accurate to say it's possible to see the spigot at the end of the water line when considering what the final three of the 20 partners in the Lewis and Clark Regional Water System could be hooked up uh, in two years time. With the latest federal appropriation in hand to finish off four ongoing projects this year and Iowa City's Sioux Center and Hull expected to be brought online by April 1st, the to-do list is getting shorter. <clears throat> We're excited. I've been involved in this project for almost 20 years, Larson said. We're hopefully just two years away from completion. It is hoped that water will be flowing to Sheldon, Iowa, and Madison, South Dakota by the end of this year or early 2024. The final hookup at Sibley, Iowa is expected to be by the end of 2024 or early 2025. The contract to install 17 miles of service line to Sibley is expected to be awarded this summer. Current projects include construction of a $1 million water, uh, excuse me, a 1 million gallon water tower near Sheldon, addition of pumps at the water treatment facilities near Vermilion, South Dakota, and completion of a 32 mile service line to Madison. Congress's recent approval of the 2023 Appropriations Bill included an $18 million uh, amount to fund the second year of those projects, and all should be finished this year. We essentially got what we asked for, Larson said. It will take an estimated $170 million in federal funding to finish the base system, Larson said. A total of $584 million in federal, state, and local funds has been spent or committed thus far to the project, which began as a dream in the 1990s. Authorized in 2000, the Lewis and Clark Regional Water System, which has its administrative offices in T, South Dakota, began construction in 2004 on a system that once completed will cover approximately 5,000 square miles with 337 miles of pipeline providing more than 44 million gallons per day to 350,000 people in 15 member cities and five rural water systems in Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota from wells that tap into an aquifer adjacent to the Missouri River near Vermilion. The system began delivering water in 2012 and 15 members, including Rock Rapids, Iowa, uh, are currently hooked up, with Sioux Center and Hull scheduled to go online this spring, and the possible addition of Sheldon and Madison yet this year. Sibley could be the only member left to be connected when 2024 begins. We are super enthused, said Murray Holstein 
Sue Simmers, Utilities Manager and Chairperson of the Lewis and Clark Executive Committee. When we joined this organization, it was for the future. Obviously, it's taken a long time to get here. Sue Sinners hook up this spring will come just in time, said Holstein, who's been involved with the water system from the beginning. The city's current water supply is maxed out during peak summer usage, forcing the city to implement watering restrictions. Lewis and Clark water, which will be softer and higher quality, will supplement the city's supply, easing the stress recent drought conditions have had on the city's two shallow water wells. As the final projects to complete the system are approaching, Larson said work has begun on a $125 million expansion that will increase the system's capacity to 60 million gallons per day. Improvements that have already boosted by $25 million in grants from Iowa and South Dakota state governments and roughly $2 million more is expected from South Dakota and Minnesota. The remaining expansion costs will be funded by system members' water rates. Larson said the expansion, which could be done in 2030, will not require installing any new lines, but will include additional water wells, pumps, and pump stations, and expansion of the treatment plant. Our next story is titled, Let It Snow. The Okoboji Winter Games Bring Out the Cold Weather Athletes. Uh, most of the time, Kelly Zankowski is the first person to say let it snow. But after a January 17th storm dumped nearly 10 inches of snow on the Dickinson County Resort community of Okoboji, the Iowa Great Lakes Area Chamber of Commerce membership director admitted she's finally had enough of the white stuff. We want Okoboji to feel like a winter wonderland when the University of Okoboji Winter Games comes around, Zankowski said. However, this is plenty of snow for us. The 43rd Annual University of Okoboji Winter Games, that's the 43rd Annual uh, Winter uh, Games, presented by the Chamber of Commerce and Great Tree Medical Staff, will run Thursday through Sunday at various locations throughout the Iowa Great Lakes. It usually attracts around 30,000 people, Zankowski said. We generally get more people when there's snow on the ground. That's because the Winter Games attracts plenty of cold weather aficionados who love to ride on snowmobiles, fish, or simply hang out on the icy water. True fanatics may enjoy quirkier sports like outdoor axe throwing, snow softball, and even a human dog sled team. Braver souls may even want to participate in the Winter Games annual Polar Plunge, which often has a wait list. My goodness. It seems like there are always more people wanting to Polar Plunge than space for them to safely plunge, Sankowski said. Me, I'd be watching from the sidelines. Or else she will be at the Boji Kite Festival, started in 2020 by Stephen Boat and Eagle Construction. It is held on the frozen waters of West Lake Okoboji. We're getting kites and kite flyers from all around the world, Zankowski said. For those wanting a warmer experience, 
They may prefer ever-popular indoor tournaments like billiards, cribbage, ping-pong, volleyball, and pickleball. Even non-sports fans will have plenty of uh, beer tastings, chili cook-offs, as well of, as four nights of live music to keep them busy. So if you would like to go, it is the 43rd annual University of Okoboji Winter Games. Uh, it's held at various times between Thursday through Sunday. Uh, there are multiple locations on and around Lake Okoboji in Iowa. And if you'd like to visit their website, it is U of yeah U of O wintergames.com. And here's the weather forecast for the Siouxland area today. Mostly cloudy and not as cold. Uh, winds out of the west, 7 to 14 miles per hour, the high 32 degrees. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Winds out of the west-northwest, 7 to 14 miles an hour, the low 16 degrees. On Tuesday, intervals of cloud and sunshine. Winds out of the south, 7 to 14 miles per hour. The high on Tuesday, 33 degrees, the low 18 degrees. On Wednesday, breezy and colder. A afternoon flurry of snow, winds out of the northwest, 12 to 25 miles per hour, the high 24 degrees, the low 10. On Thursday, some sun, then returning to cloudiness, winds out of the west-northwest, 8 to 16 miles per hour, the high on Thursday, 22 degrees, the low 18. On Friday, mostly cloudy and not as cold. Winds out of the west-northwest, 8 to 16 miles per hour. The high on Friday, 36 degrees. The low, 15 degrees. The normal high for this date, 30 degrees. The normal low, 10 degrees. The record high for this date was 62 degrees, set in 1989. And the record low for this date was minus 21 degrees, set in 1936. Next, we have some national and world news. Uh, CNH workers okay a deal to end their strike. More than 1,000 CNH industrial workers who have been on strike since last May approved a new contract Saturday with the maker of tractors, bulldozers, backhoes, and other heavy equipment. The United Auto Workers said union members in Racine, Wisconsin, and Burlington, Iowa approved the deal two weeks after they rejected an earlier agreement. The union did not disclose any details of what is included in the contract. A spokesperson for CNH Industrial did not immediately respond Sunday to questions about the new agreement. Previously, the company said the last offer that workers rejected included raises of 28 to 38% over four years. Throughout the strike, workers fought for raises that would help cover soaring inflation and would not be consumed by increases in health insurance costs. Before the walkout started last May 2nd, workers rejected a deal with 18.5% raises because of those concerns. Next in this series, 12 injured in a Los Angeles nightclub shooting. Uh, excuse me, uh, LA nightclub shooting. Uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana is where this story comes from. 
a dozen people were, so I'm sorry for the confusion, LA stands for Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. A dozen people were injured in a Baton Rouge nightclub shooting, authorities in Louisiana said on Sunday. One of the victims is in critical condition, police said. No arrests have been made, but police believe the early morning attack was targeted. This was not a random act of violence based on the preliminary investigation efforts, Baton Rouge Police Chief Murphy Paul said at a news conference Sunday afternoon. We believe that this was a targeted event where someone was specifically targeted and others were injured in that process. Three Baton Rouge police officers were nearby when the shots were fired around 1.30 in the morning and they responded to the Dior Bar and Lounge. They administered life-saving aid until emergency medical technicians arrived. Although police have some leads, Paul urged anyone else with information about the shooting to come forward. Police did not say how many of the people shot were targeted. Uh, the next item in this series, Lunar New Year, people across China rang in the year of the rabbit on Sunday with large family gatherings and crowds visiting temples after the government lifted its strict zero COVID policy, marking the biggest Lunar New Year celebration since the pandemic began three years ago. And in Israel, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fired key cabinet ally Arei Deir on Sunday, heeding a Supreme Court ruling commanding him to do so and deepening a rift over the power of the courts. Next in the series, in Somalia, Al-Qaeda-linked extremists stormed a regional government office in Somalia's capital Sunday, and five civilians were killed, the government said. The Al-Shabib extremist group claimed responsibility for the assault on the Bandir Regional Administration headquarters in Mogadishu. In Turkey, Outrage over a Quran burning protest in Sweden produced a second day of protests in Turkey, reflecting tensions between the two countries. Some 250 people gathered outside the Swedish consulate in Istanbul, where a photograph of Danish anti-Islam activist uh, Rasmus Paludin was set on fire. Uh, Paludin burned Islam's holy book outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm on Saturday. And Indonesia, a direct flight from China, landed in Indonesia's resort island of Bali for the first time in nearly three years on Sunday after the route was suspended due to the pandemic. Our next story uh, Biden to pick Zent as next chief of staff. President Joe Biden is expected to name Jeff Zentz, who ran the administration's response to the COVID-19 pandemic at the beginning of Biden's term, as his next chief of staff, according to two people that are familiar with the matter. Biden's current top aide, Ron Klain, is preparing to leave the job in the coming weeks. Since serving as COVID-19 response coordinator, Zentz has returned to the White House in a low-profile position to work on staffing matters for the remainder of Biden's first term. 
The two people familiar with the matter were not authorized to publicly discuss Biden's plans before an official announcement, and they spoke on the condition of anonymity. The Washington Post first reported on Zent's expected appointment. The White House did not respond to requests for comment. The change at the highest levels of senior staff come as Biden passes his two-year mark in office and pivots to a defensive stance against a House Republican majority, hungry to investigate his administration's actions and his family. The White House remains mired in controversy over discoveries of classified documents at Biden's home in Washington, or excuse me, Wilmington, Delaware, and at his former institute in Washington with the latest trash of, or trash of found records disclosed Saturday night. Biden, 80 years old, is also preparing to launch his re-election campaign in the coming weeks, bolstered by a string of legislative accomplishments in the first two years of his presidency, when Democrats control both chambers of Capitol Hill. He is confronting a Republican presidential field that is far from formed, but for now is led by former President Donald Trump, who Biden defeated in the year 2020. The president's main sphere of advisors, in addition to Zents, on politics and legislation will continue to include presidential counselor Stephen Rochetti, senior advisors Michael Don Donlian, and Anita Dunn, legislative affairs director Louisa Terrell, and Jen O'Malley, Dylan, and Bruce Reed, who are deputy chiefs of staff. Klain will remain in Biden's political orbit, according to a person familiar with his plans not unlike the role played by Cedric Richmond, who was the president's first director of White House Office of Public Engagement and now is a senior advisor at the Democratic National Committee. The outgoing chief of staff was also known to be friendly with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but some liberal critics of Zents swiftly went on the attack against the appointment even before it was official, highlighting in particular, his private sector ties. Jeff Hauser, the founder and director of the Revolving Door Project, a progressive group that advocates for liberal appointees in government, said Sunday that the selection of Zents as top White House aide did not jive with Biden's Scranton Joe political image. Unfortunately, Zents is a veteran of private equity, uh, rapturous health care providers, and big tech, which sets up a fundamental question that could determine Biden's political future. Will a Zents-led executive branch pursue the unpopular misconduct of people like Jeffrey Zents, Hauser said? It would be against Zents' character to pursue corporate lawbreaking, but it also is the only way Biden can retain the mantle of populist against the likes of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Zents Vice Chairman of Biden's transition operation after his November 2020 election brings significant managerial expertise in government and the private sector. He was the director of the National Economic Council during the Obama administration, and he was acting director of the Office of Management and Budget. The longtime management consultant developed a Mr. Fix-It reputation, tapped to lead the Obama administration's effort to repair healthcare.gov 
after the bungled initial rollout of the site in fall of 2013. Zentz served as top executive at the advisory board company, a Washington consulting firm. Former President Barack Obama also enlisted Zentz in 2009 to eliminate the backlog in applicants for the Cash for Clunkers program, which offered rebates to drivers who swapped old cars for fuel-efficient vehicles. Zentz later took on a similar challenge to smooth signups for an updated version of the GI Bill. Another coming perk for White House aides, Zentz, who was an initial investor in Call Your Mother, a bagel shop in Washington, had a penchant for hosting Bagel Wednesdays for staff. Zentz divested his shares before joining the White House in 2021. Zentz and his deputy on the White House pandemic response team, Natalie Quillen, left the Biden administration last April. Biden thanked him for stunning and consequential progress battling the pandemic. When Jeff took this job, less than 1% of Americans were fully vaccinated. Fewer than half of our schools were open, and unlike much of the developed world, America lacked any at-home COVID tests, Biden said, when the White House announced Zent's departure last year. Today, almost 80% of adults are fully vaccinated. More than 100 million are boosted. Virtually every school is open, and hundreds of millions of at-home tests are distributed every month. Well, normally at this point in the reading of the Sioux City Journal, we would take a break and take a look at the obituaries for today. Uh, fortunately, there are no obituaries for today. So uh, we're happy to hear that. And we will continue with the news. So our next story uh, is titled Democrats on Defense. Senator Durbin says President Biden should be embarrassed by the situation. Uh, this story comes to us from Washington. Senator, or excuse me, senior Democrats dismayed by a steady stream of startling disclosures expressed criticism Sunday of how President Joe Biden handled classified material after leaving office as vice president and disappointment that the White House has not been more forthcoming with the public. Lawmakers who might have anticipated questions focusing on the debt limit or Ukraine aid when they were booked last week for the Sunday news shows, found themselves quizzed about the latest development over the weekend in the document drama that has put Biden's presidency on the defensive. During a search Friday of Biden's home in Wilmington, that's in Delaware, the Federal Bureau of Investigation found additional documents with classified markings and took possession of some of those handwritten notes that the president's lawyer said that they found on Saturday. Biden should be embarrassed by this situation, said Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, the second-ranking Democrat in the Senate, adding that the president had ceded the moral high ground on an issue that has already entangled former President Donald Trump. Special counsels appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland are investigating both cases. Well, of course, he said, let's be honest about it. When that information is found, it diminishes the stature of any person who is in possession of it because it's not supposed to happen. The elected official bears ultimate responsibility, Durbin said. 
Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat representing West Virginia, said Biden should have a lot of regrets. He just might as well say, listen, it's irresponsible. The president told reporters on Thursday that he had no regrets over how and when the public learned about the documents that there was no there there. Despite their criticism, Biden's fellow Democrats defended uh, what they said was his cooperation with the Justice Department as the search for additional classified material unfolds. They contrasted it with Trump's resistance to efforts to recover hundreds of documents after he left office. It is outrageous that either occurred, Durbin said, but the reaction by the former president and the current president could not be in sharper contrast. Biden voluntarily allowed the FBI into his home on Friday, but the lack of a warrant did not dim the extraordinary nature of the search. It compounded the embarrassment to Biden that started in earlier January with the disclosure that the president's um, lawyers had found a small number of classified records at a former office at the Penn Biden Center in Washington shortly before the November 8 elections. The White House had disclosed that Biden's team found classified documents and official records on three other occasions in recent months. In follow-up searches on December 20th in the garage of his Wilmington home and then on January 11th and 12th in his home library. The discoveries have become a political library, excuse me, a political liability as Biden prepares to kick off his 2024 re-election bid. And they undercut his efforts to portray an image of propriety to the American public after the tumultuous presidency of his predecessor, Donald Trump. Our next story comes to us from Kyiv, Ukraine. Germany will not block Poland giving tanks to Ukraine. The German government will not object if Poland decides to send Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine, Germany's top diplomat said on Sunday, indicating movement on supplying weapons that Kyiv has described as essential to its ability to fend off an intensified Russian offensive. German Foreign Minister Analia Berpakak told French television channel LCI that Poland has not formally asked for Berlin's approval to share some of its German-made leopards, but added, if we were asked, we would not stand in the way. German officials now know how important these tanks are, and this is why we are discussing this now with our partners, Barbara Cox said in an interview clip posted by LCI Television. Ukraine supporters pledged billions of dollars in military aid to Ukraine during a meeting at Ramstein Air Base in Germany on Friday. International defense leaders discussed Ukraine's urgent request for the Leopard 2 tanks, and the failure to work out an agreement overshadowed the new commitments. Germany is one of the main donors of weapons to Ukraine, and it ordered a review of its Leopard 2 stocks in preparation for a possible green light. Nonetheless, the government in Berlin has shown caution at every step of increasing its military aid to Ukraine, hesitancy seen as rooted in its history and political culture. Germany's tentativeness has drawn criticism, particularly from Poland, 
and the Baltic states, countries on NATO's eastern flank, that feel especially threatened by Russia's renewed aggression. Polish Prime Minister uh, Matisu Morzawiecki said that if the fellow NATO and European Union member did not consent to transferring leopard tanks to Ukraine, his country was prepared to build a smaller coalition of countries that would send theirs anyway. Earlier Sunday, the Speaker of the Lower House on Russia's Parliament, State Duma Chairman uh, Vizhelev uh, Volodin, said, Governments that give more powerful weapons to Ukraine risk causing a global tragedy that would destroy their countries. Supplies of offensive weapons to the Kyiv regime would lead to a global catastrophe, Volodin said. Our next story is titled with a question, can a felon run for office? It depends on where you live. The case of a defeated New Mexico candidate arrested in a politically motivated shooting spree has turned a spotlight on an issue that has been evolving in the states. Whether or not people with criminal convictions are eligible to run for public office. Solomon Pena overwhelmingly lost a bid for the New Mexico State House as a Republican and is accused of paying four men to shoot at the homes of four Democratic officials. He had denied his loss and made baseless claims that the November election was rigged against him, even though he received just 26% of the vote against the longtime Democratic incumbent. While the case raises alarms over politically motivated violence in the United States, it also highlights differences across the country in whether people with past criminal convictions can run for office. Pena spent nine years behind bars after being convicted of being part of a retail theft ring. The states have a range of laws for reinstating rights to felons. In most cases, the ability to seek state or local office coincides with the restoration of voting rights. But even in some states where the vote is restored automatically, felons still need to get a pardon or expungement to run for office, according to Margaret Love, co-founder and director of the Collateral Consequences Resource Center, which keeps a 50-state database on restoration of rights. Some states, including Louisiana and Nebraska, have additional time requirements on when someone's eligibility to run for office can be restored. States that require a pardon can vary on who has the pardoning authority. Pena, who is 39 years old, was arrested in April 2007 accused of stealing electronics and other goods from several retail stores as part of a burglary crew. He was released from prison in 2016 and had his voting rights restored after completing five years of probation in 2021, according to correction officials. His opponent last year filed a lawsuit questioning Pena's eligibility to seek office, but New Mexico District Court Judge Joshua Allison said, the state constitution only required that he be qualified voter to be eligible for elected office. In a ruling that is being appealed, the judge said any attempt by the state legislature to impose additional requirements would be unconstitutional. In New Mexico, voting rights are now automatically reinstated upon completion of a sentence. Lauren Rodriguez, 
Communications Director for the State Attorney General's Office said in a written response to questions. Some states do not allow those with felony convictions to run for office, while others impose various restrictions. Earlier this month, on the two-year anniversary of his participation in the attack on the United States Capitol, former West Virginia state lawmaker Derek Evans announced that he would run for a U.S. House seat in 2024. That is despite pleading guilty to a felony civil disorder charge in 2022. With his felony conviction and a sentence that includes three years of probation, state law would prohibit Evans from voting or seeking state or local office. Under that law, even when he finishes his sentence, he would be unable to run again for the legislature or for magistrate, a limited judicial post that is open to non-lawyers. There are no such limits to run for federal office. University of Iowa law professor Derek Mueller said the Constitution's 14th Amendment spells out who would be unable to run for federal office. The list includes those who took an oath to support the U.S. Constitution and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion, or those who gave aid or comfort to the country's enemies. That's the only thing that expressly disqualifies you under the Constitution, he said. Donald Kersey III, Deputy Secretary and General Counsel for the West Virginia Secretary of State's office said, Evans was not convicted of insurrection or treason and therefore appears eligible to run for Congress. In Georgia, a person convicted of a felony involving moral turpitude can hold office only if the State Board of Pardons and Paroles grants a pardon or a restoration of civil and political rights. Most violent crimes and most felonies involving stealing money are crimes of moral turpitude, but some, like felony DUI, are not. A felony conviction in Illinois bars people from holding any municipal office, for instance, as a city mayor or village board trustee, unless they receive a pardon or the state's governor restores their rights. Illinois also bars people with a felony conviction from serving as a county sheriff or taking on a political office overseeing a fire protection district, a public library board, or a park district. In Virginia, people convicted of felonies are automatically stripped of their civil rights. The state constitution gives the governor the sole discretion to restore them, apart from gun rights. With the restoration of voting rights comes the ability to seek public office. Candidates with felony criminal records can hold office in New Hampshire once their sentences are finished, except for those convicted of a bribery or corruption to get elected or obtain an appointment. Louisianans approved a constitutional amendment in 1997 that barred convicted felons from seeking or holding public office for 15 years following the completion of their sentence, but a 2016 state Supreme Court ruling nullified that. In 2018, state voters again overwhelmingly passed a constitutional amendment on the subject. This one prohibits convicted felons, unless pardoned, from seeking or holding public office until five years after completing their sentence. In Nebraska, the law has several steps. First is a two-year wait after the completion of a sentence to have voting rights restored. That allows someone to seek office, but not hold it which requires a pardon. 
Her next story is titled Twinkle Twinkle Fading Stars Hiding in Our Brighter Skies. Every year the night sky grows brighter and the stars look dimmer. A new study that analyzes data from more than 50,000 amateur stargazers finds that artificial lighting is making the night sky about 10% brighter each year. That is a much faster rate of change than scientists previously estimated looking at satellite data. The research, which includes data from 2011 to 2022, was published recently in the Journal of Science. We're losing, year by year, the possibility to see the stars, said Fabio Falici, a physicist at the University of Santiago de Compostela, who was not involved in the study. As cities expand and put up more lights, sky glow, or artificial twilight, as the study authors call it, becomes more intense. The 10% annual change is a lot bigger than I expected, something you'll notice clearly within a lifetime, said Christopher Kaiba, a study co-author and physicist at the German Research Center for Geoscience in Potsdam. Kaiba and his colleagues gave this example. A child is born where 250 stars are visible on a clear night. By the time that child turns 18, only 100 stars are visible. This is a real pollution affecting people and wildlife, said Kaiba, who said he hoped that policymakers would do more to control light pollution. Some localities have set limits. The study data from amateur stargazers in the nonprofit Globe at Night project was collected in similar fashion. Volunteers look for the constellation Orion. Remember the three stars of his belt, and they match what they see in the night sky to a series of charts showing an increasing number of surrounding stars. Prior studies of artificial lighting, which use satellite images of the Earth at night, estimated the annual increase in sky brightness to be about 2% a year. But the satellites used are not able to detect light with wavelengths towards the blue end of the spectrum, including the light emitted by energy-efficient LED bulbs. More than half of the new outdoor lights installed in the United States in the last decade have been LED lights, according to the researchers. The satellites are also better at detecting light that scatters upward, like a spotlight than light that scatters horizontally, like the glow of an illuminated billboard at night, according to Kaiba. Sky glow disrupts human circadian rhythms, as well as other forms of life, said Georgetown biologist Emily Williams, who was not part of the study. Migratory songbirds normally use starlight to orient where they are in the sky at night, she said, and when sea turtle babies hatch, they use light to orient towards the ocean. Light pollution is a huge deal for them. Part of what's being lost is a universal human experience, said Felici, the physicist at University of Santiago de Compostela. The night sky has been for all generations before ours a source of inspiration for art and science and literature, he said. And next we have a sports story. The Dew City Musketeers finish a weekend sweep. The Dew City Musketeers were victorious in their inaugural game 
with a 4-1 victory over the Lincoln Stars to sweep the weekend series from their Western Conference rivals. Following the same script as the previous night in Lincoln, both teams were held scoreless through the first period. It was early in the second period when the Dew City found the net for the first time. Sawyer Scholl got off a quick shot from the top of the slot to put the Muskies up one to nothing. The Dew City name is the result of a Mountain Dew promotion. Mountain Dew jerseys worn during the game were auctioned off to support Camp High Hopes. At the nine minute mark of the period, Ben Doran deflected a pass from Tyler Hodson past the Lincoln netminder to give the Musketeers a two to nothing lead that they carried into the third period. Early in the third period, Ren Morke, who scored his first USHL goal in the previous night's win over Lincoln, tallied his second in as many games to put Dew City ahead three to nothing. Ryan Conmey padded his clubhouse lead with his 19th lamplighter of the season at the 449 mark of the third to give Dew City a commanding four to nothing lead. Uh, Mason Marcellus was the only Lincoln star to beat Musketeer goalie Croy uh, Kochendorfer in the contest at the 15-11 mark, giving the game its final score of 4-1. Kochendorfer stopped 26 of 27 shots in the win and earned the game's first star. Kochendorfer started and won both games of the weekend sweep over the Stars. He stopped 56 of 59 total shots for a .949 save percentage and a 1.5 GAA. The Musketeers, now 16, 12, 2, and 3, currently sit in fourth place in the Western Conference standings. Next weekend features a pair of road games starting in Des Moines on Friday at 7.05, and they next play on their home ice on February 3rd when they again face the Buccaneers at Tyson Events Center. Next, I'm going to read some high school boys' basketball scores. If you're not really interested in these, call the IRIS office in Des Moines and let them know, and I will not read these in the future. Bishop Heelan, 77 over Sioux City North, uh, 44. Uh, Boyden Hull, 55 over George Little Rock, 53. Central Lion, 75 over MOC Floyd Valley, 65. Council Bluffs, Lincoln, 55 over Lamars, 43. East Sac County, 60 over Alta Aurelia, 47. Emmitsburg, 64 over Pocahontas area, 38. Esterville, Lincoln Central, 71 over Storm Lake, 63. Uh, Helen Catholic, 75 over Unity Christian, 53. Uh, GTRA 63 over West Bend Mallard 52 Hinton 72 over Harris Lake Park 55 Lawton Bronson 83 over River Valley 26 Manson uh, Northwest over Webster or no Manson Northwest Webster over 80 over Storm Lake St. Mary's 35 Newell Fonda 84 over Southeast Valley 67 Ridgeview, 83 over Woodbury Central, 30. Rock Valley, 68 over Sibley Oshiden, 52. Sioux Center, 60 over Okoboji, 40. Sioux City East, 93 over Council Bluffs, Jefferson, 37. Sioux City West, 60 over Sergeant Bluff, Luton, 
45, South O'Brien, 59, over Akron, Westfield, 44, West Line, 86, over Shelvin, 47, Western Christian, 70, over Spencer, 39, and Westwood, 82, over MBA COU, 35. And in South Dakota, Dakota Valley, 73, over Tri-Valley, 52, Vermilion, 76, over Garretson, 46, and Yankton, 58, over Roosevelt, 47. That, of course, was the boys. Uh, uh, girl scores in Iowa. Akron Westfield, 52, over South O'Brien, 25. Bishop Heeland, 61, over Sioux City North, 25. Central Lions, 68, over MDC Floyd Valley, 44. Cherokee Washington, 63, over Spirit Lake, 58. East Sac County, 60, over Alta Aurelia, 58. Esterville, 70, over Storm Lake, 31. George Little Rock, 48, over Boyden Hall, 35. GTRA, 68, over West Bend Mallard, 58. Kingsley Pearson, 63, over West Monona, 45. Lamars, uh, 62, over Council Bluffs Lincoln, 49. Newell Fonda, 80 over Southeast Valley, 37. Pocahontas area, 47 over Emmitsburg, 40. Ridgeview, 55 over Woodbury Central, 42. River Valley, 57 over Lawton Bronson, 46. Sergeant Bluff Lutton, 53 over Sioux City West, 44. Sibley Ochiden, 71 over Rock Valley, 34. Sioux Center, 69 over Okaboji, 39. Sioux City East, 94 over Council Bluffs, Jefferson, 22. Spencer, 64 over Western Christian, 47. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for here on Iris, reading the Sioux City Journal for Monday, January 23rd, 2023. Your reader today has been Dave Sauerman. Thank you for listening to this Iris program.